Good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good. You're back for more Melchizedek. For those of you who might be new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going through the book of Hebrews, and our sermon series is called The Sermon God Wrote. Two reasons. Number one, the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon that was then later transcribed and turned into a letter. And from a human standpoint, we don't know who the author is. The author of Hebrews is anonymous, uh, but we do know that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's given to us by God, and so uh, that's why it's called The Sermon God Wrote. And we are really in the heart of the text, right in the heart of the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter seven, if you want to open your Bibles there. And we're talking about this figure, Melchizedek, and how he points us to the person and the work of Jesus. We've been uh, working on Melchizedek now for a couple of weeks, and we're going to be talking about Melchizedek for a little while still. Today, we're in verses 11 through 22. I'll read these verses, I'll pray, and then we'll spend some time Uh, unpacking them together. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for giving us your word that we might learn of who you are and what you have done to save us. And God, I just ask right now that you would give us illumination. Uh, God, I will confess these verses are thick. They are technical. They are outside of the normal realm uh, that many of us think. We don't often think about oaths and covenants and perfection. And uh, God, we, we want to think your thoughts. We want to have our minds shaped by the the scriptures. And so I just pray you'd send the Holy Spirit right now to to bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds. God, help me to teach them with truth, with, with clarity. God, help all of us to have soft and receptive and teachable hearts. And we pray this all in the beautiful name of Jesus, our great high priest. And everyone said, amen. Let me ask you a question. When I use the word perfection, What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Something is perfect. 
Maybe for some of you, you're thinking of the perfect date night with your spouse. Or maybe for some of you musicians, the, the perfect sounding guitar. Maybe for some of you red-blooded Americans, the perfectly cooked steak. What does is, what is perfect look like for you? When I think of the word perfection, at least this weekend, I think of Olympic gymnastics. Didn't see that coming, did you? Here's why. I'll tell you why. This weekend, my wife and our oldest daughter are actually traveling out of state for a gymnastics competition. If I seem lost and bewildered, it's because my wife has been gone for a few days. Pray for me and my children. But they're, they're traveling for a, a gymnastics competition. I'm really proud of my oldest daughter. She's doing well. Uh, she does things like flips and the splits and things that if I tried to do, you'd have to call a helicopter to take me to the hospital. And, and she's grown a ton in self-discipline and, and she gets better scores all the time. She's competing at a higher level. We're really proud of her. I actually got texts yesterday afternoon. She, she did her competition. She got a bunch of really good scores, scores in the, the mid eights. Nobody got a perfect 10. Do you know that? A 10 is the, like the perfect score in gymnastics. Nobody got a perfect 10. Gymnastics is unique because that's one of those sports where you can actually define perfection. Here it is. Here's the standard. If you do every single thing right, you can get it perfect. There have only been, I think it's two gymnasts in the history of Olympic competition that ever got a perfect 10. Uh, Nadia Comaneci, right? And then USA, uh, uh, what's her name? Mary Lou Retton. Not just once, but twice. You got a perfect 10 on the vault. In, in, in other sports, actually, those of you who are football fans, you don't have to be perfect to win. You could play like Peyton Manning did in the Super Bowl and still win, right? I wasn't, the, I wasn't trying to be mean. He just didn't have a very good game. We're, we're oftentimes not so concerned with perfection. You just have to be better than somebody else. But gymnastics is unique because there is a bar. There is a line. If you do all of these things, you can be declared perfect. I would submit to you that we as Americans have a very interesting relationship with perfection. On the one hand, we have this mantra that we say, nobody's perfect. Yet on the other hand, have you ever watched somebody just lose their mind when their waiter doesn't refill their drink fast enough? No, nobody's perfect. Yeah, but what about when your phone is broken and it's just not working? If you don't believe in human depravity, go to the cell phone store and just hang out for an hour and watch people just go absolutely berserk over their phone not working properly. It's supposed to be perfect. We're very hypocritical when it comes to our standard of perfection. Nobody's perfect. I don't want you to judge me. I want you to, to judge me by my intentions, not by what I do. But then we turn around and we expect other people, especially those in the service industry, to meet some bar and some standard of perfection. There's something that's really important for us as Christians to know, and it's this. As Christians, as followers of God, as people who have been saved by Jesus, we have to remember that God has drawn a line for, for those who can be in relationship with him. And do you know where God drew the line? It's at perfection. God himself is a holy and a righteous and a perfect God. Amen? God himself, there, there is no sin in him. There is no darkness in him. There is nothing evil in the person, in, in who God is, in the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God created the world, it says that he created things very good. Good. 
And everything existed in a state of shalom, in a state of peace and wholeness and wellness. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel and say, God, I don't want to follow your plan. I don't want you to be Lord over my life. I want to take charge. And so they rebelled against God. And ever since then, every single human being who has ever lived has failed to reach the bar of God's perfection. The Bible clearly says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many Sound City Bible Church? All. It's a 0% success rate. And think about this. Think about that pressure of having to live under perfection. If you went to work tomorrow, and your boss came to you and says, you have to do your job perfectly, or there will be really serious consequences. How does that make you feel? Emotionally, what does that, what does that do to your heart? See, the thing is, for, for many people, they, they know that there's a bar. They know that there's a line. They know that they're sinful and they're flawed. And the, the real question is, what do I do with this? How do, I, how do I get back into a place where I can know that I'm in right standing with God, that I can know that I'm in right relationship with God? And church, I have some very good news for you today. The good news is that God has chosen to not treat us according to how our sins would deserve, but that God has decided to act toward us in mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's very good news, amen? And he has done so through a word that I want you to understand, this, this term covenant. Covenant is how God has come toward us, how he has moved toward us in grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And since covenant is not a particularly familiar term for us as 21st century Westerners, I wanna just take a minute so we can understand when the Bible speaks about covenants, what, what the first hearers of this letter would have been thinking about, what the author of Hebrews would have been thinking about when they speak of covenant. Let me just set this up for you, uh, hopefully very simply. The first thing I want you to know about covenant is this. Covenant is simply a formal bond between two parties. It's a formal bond. It's, it's, it's not an informal bond. It's, it's a formal bond. It's something that takes intentionality. The second thing I want you to know about covenant is there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. Very simply put, a contract is much more uh, transactional. It's much more motivated by self-interest. It's much more motivated maybe by money or, or just the, the circumstances, whereas a covenant is much more relational. It's not just, we're gonna have this agreement. It's, I'm committing myself to you. I'm investing myself in your betterment. I'm committing myself to you in a way that goes much deeper than just a contract. I would submit to you that we live very contractual lives in America and that the, the biblical picture of covenant is so much deeper than that. The third thing I want you to see is that throughout the Bible, we have all sorts of examples of human covenants, lots of different types of covenants. There's a covenant between different leaders and, and their tribes. There's covenants between a husband and a wife in, in a marriage covenant. There's a covenant between parents and children. Uh, the Bible talks about that in, in the book of Ruth. And actually, even between friends. Did you know that, that David and Jonathan made a covenant of friendship? 
You may have noticed here at Sound City Bible Church, we use the language of covenant membership. That was done intentionally because we don't want membership to simply be just another contract that you enter into, like, like a, a you know, membership at a grocery store rewards club or membership at a movie store. I guess they don't have those anymore. I need to think of a different illustration, but you know what I mean, right? I'm a member of Costco. I'm a member of the Rotary Club. No, the, the church is something much different than that. We belong to each other. We're investing in relationship with one another. And there's a lot of different examples of that throughout the pages of the scripture. But then there's, then there's divine covenants. And divine covenants are, are very different. We see examples of covenants that God made with, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and the people of Israel, and with, with King David. And there's something really unique about these divine covenants. <laughs> One thing that you don't see in any of these divine covenants, when God shows up and makes a covenant with another party, there is no negotiating. There's no bartering. There's no back and forth. Noah's not like, you know, God, I like your terms, but let me, let me a counter offer here. None of that. In fact, in some of these covenants, you don't even really see a response on the part of the individual. God just shows up and says, I am making a covenant with you. And they're like, okay. When, when God shows up, when he makes a divine covenant, first of all, it's much more one-sided. And second of all, the terms are always way better than anything we would have come up with. You accept the covenant that, that God gives. You don't barter and wheel and deal. Now, of all of these covenants, these divine covenants, which one do you think is the big one? Which one, to the, to the mind of a, of a first century Jew who would be listening to this letter to the Hebrews, which one stands out above all the rest? I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but if you were thinking Moses, congratulations, uh, you get 30 bonus points. Moses is, yeah, how many of you are thinking Moses? You can raise your hand. It's okay. It's not bragging. All right. Moses is the big covenant because this is, this is where God set his people free from Egypt this is where God took them through the Red Sea. This is where God met with them at Mount Sinai. This is where God spoke in thunder and in lightning. This is where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the book of the law. This is where God promised a land to his people, led them through the desert, led them through the wilderness. The, the Mosaic covenant is the big deal. When you hear people reference the covenant or the law that God gave, what they're talking about is the covenant that God made through Moses with the people of Israel. And so as we get into this passage today, as we get into this passage today, you're going to see this that talks about the covenant or the first covenant. And then the author of Hebrews is going to talk about a new covenant or a better covenant or an eternal covenant. There's a contrast being made here, and it's particularly with the Mosaic covenant. Let me say one other thing just by way briefly of introduction, and it's found in verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 12, it's this. The author of Hebrews says, when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So just to refresh your memory, last week we kept talking about how Jesus gets to be high priest. Jesus is, is the high priest. And the, the people would have pushed back, said, well, wait a minute, Jesus can't be high priest. He is from the tribe of Judah and priests legally have to come from the tribe of Levi. And the author of Hebrews says, no, it's okay. He, he gets to be a priest. He's not a Levitical priest. He's from the priesthood of Melchizedek. 
whoa, this is a paradigm changer. This is a game changer. He's, he's a different type of priest. But what the author of Hebrews wants us to know is that it's not just that he's a new priest. It's not just that there's a new priesthood. There's a whole new law. There's a whole new covenant. There's a change that goes along with it. The whole system is changing. Let me give you a, an analogy. This won't be a perfect analogy, but none of them ever are. But think of it this way. Imagine if in November... We all woke up after election day was thankfully over. And instead of electing a president, we accidentally put in place a prime minister. And instead of electing a Senate, we accidentally put in place a parliament. And now there's a whole entire new leadership over the United States of America. Do you think that would be, first of all, do you think that would be controversial? Do you think some bloggers would have some things to say about that? But here's the problem is that doesn't work with our constitution. If you have a, a prime minister and a parliament, it doesn't mesh with our constitution. You'd have to have a new constitution. You'd have to write a whole new charter. The whole system goes together. Your documents, whatever your legal documents are, they go with the leadership that's in place. What the author of Hebrews is saying is we have a new priesthood and there's a new constitution. There's a new covenant. There's a change in the law that's taking place. And, and I need you to understand if it would be controversial or shocking for us to wake up as Americans to find out that we have a new uh, leadership, if we have a prime minister and a charter now, that would be controversial to us, but it's nowhere near as shocking as contra and controversial as it would have been for these first century Jews to hear that there is a new priesthood and a new covenant. The author of Hebrews just said something astounding, mind-blowing. Some would be enraged. Some would be just utterly shocked and stunned. How can you say? We were given this law. We were given this covenant by God through the great leader Moses. We have thousands of years of tradition. This covenant, this law is what orders all of our lives. It's what we live by. It's how we know what's right and wrong. It's how we do everything. How can you say that there's a new covenant? How can you say that there's a better covenant? And so that's really the big question that the author of Hebrews is addressing today. And we're gonna see three things about this, this covenant, just to give you a heads up of where we're going. We're gonna see that we need a better covenant. We're gonna see the sponsor of this better covenant, and we're gonna see the security of this better covenant. So the need, the sponsor, and the security. Those are our kind of three big ideas we're gonna see. The first is this, the need for a better covenant. I'm gonna jump around a little bit so you can, guys can see the, the, the flow of this argument. So follow along with me if you want to um, on the screen or in your Bibles. Verse 11, here, here's where the author of Hebrews brings up this idea of a need for a better covenant. Now, if perfection, there's our word, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron. What he's saying here is God gave the law, but it did not help us get to that bar of perfection that God requires. The law, I want you to hear something. The author of Hebrews is going to have a lot of contrast sort of language the contrast between the, the first covenant and the new covenant. He's not saying that the first covenant was bad and this new one is good. He's saying the first covenant was good, but it was incomplete. We needed something more in order to achieve this goal of perfection. 
if perfection had been attainable, why would we need another priest? Why would we need a whole new setup? Skip down to verse 18 and 19. He says the same type of thing. On the one hand, a former commandment, or that's the law, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Those are strong words. Would you agree? Those are very strong words, weak and useless. Could you imagine uh, reading a blog where somebody called the Constitution of the United States weak and useless? Depending on what area they lived in, they'd be tarred and feathered, right? This is, this is strong language that he's saying about the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It was set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Here it is again. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. When he uses the word weak and useless, again, he's not talking about in its entirety. The law of the Lord is a good thing. The, the covenant that God made with Moses is a good thing. Psalm says the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. So we should not denigrate what God has given in the Old Testament, but what the author of Hebrews is saying, if your goal is to, to be perfect, it's weak and useless. It has, it has no, it's of no help to make you perfect. Think of it this way. How many of you have ever gotten an x-ray? Ever had an x-ray? An x-ray shows that you have a broken bone. Uh, growing up, I was very familiar with x-ray machines, much to my parents' chagrin. An x-ray machine shows you that you have a problem, but that x-ray machine does absolutely nothing to fix the problem. The x-ray machine says, you have a problem and you need a physician. You need treatment. You need healing. What the author of Hebrews is saying about the law is that. He's saying it's weak and useless to make you perfect. The law is kind of like an x-ray machine. It shows us that there's something wrong. It shows us our need for a healer. I think an objection would probably come up at this point. People would say, well, wait a minute. If, if, if this law that God gave is, was incomplete, if this law that God gave was only temporary, what was the point? Why did he give it in the first place? It's a good question and it's a fair question. In fact, I would say that many Christians today have that same question. I, I read my New Testament. I just don't understand any of that Old Testament stuff. Why did God give the Old Testament? It's, it's, it's confusing. I don't, I don't get it. Let me, let me hopefully explain a little bit about this. First, why did God give the law? First of all, it's to show his character. Psalm 119 verse 172 says, all of your commandments are righteous. God is a righteous God, amen? There's no sin in him. There is no ungodliness in him. There is no uh, unholiness in him. God is perfect. And when he gives the law, it shows his righteous character. The second reason why God gave the law was to define sin, to help us know right from wrong. Romans 7, the apostle Paul says, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have even known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Um, any of you men ever had that experience where you walk by, there's a button that says, do not press, and the moment you see that, all you can think about is pressing the big red button? I'm not the only one. Come on, this isn't just me, right? You have that moment where somebody draws a line and says, don't do it. It's like, oh, now that desire has now raised up in me. What the apostle Paul is saying is, is that's what the law does. The law draws that line and it shows us our sinful desires. It shows us that we want to break the law. We want to cross those lines. 
The third thing that the law does is it restrains sin. Galatians 3.23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Imprisoned under the law, held captive. Uh, in my neighborhood, there's a speed limit sign. It says 25 miles an hour. And if people drive faster than 25 miles an hour, uh, a police officer can pull them over and give them a speeding ticket. Now, that doesn't do anything to change the heart of a person who's speeding down the road. I would love it if somebody was speeding. They said, wow, you know, I bet there's little kids that live in this neighborhood. I should really exercise caution. I don't want to, you know, injure anybody. That would be a good heart change. But sometimes people don't speed just because there's a speed limit sign and they're afraid of getting in trouble. The law restrains evil. Without the law, then we have anarchy. So the law was given to restrain sin. And number four, most importantly, the law was given to show us our need for a savior. Galatians 3, 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came to show us in order that we might be justified by faith. We come up against the law, it's, it's demands, it's, it's, it's requirements of perfection. We say, I can't do this. I can't meet the bar. I can't live up to the standard. I need help. That's the perfect moment where God then introduces his promise of that help to come. God has always promised, did you know this? God has always promised a new and a better covenant. I could show you dozens of examples. Uh, in fact, the author of Hebrews is gonna really spend a lot of time in Jeremiah chapter 31 showing how God had promised this better covenant. But let me, let me read you one particular verse in Ezekiel 16, verses 59 through 60. Again, this is hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. This is a prophecy given by the prophet Ezekiel. He says this, thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. How many of us are covenant breakers? Every single one of us. I will deal with you, you covenant breakers. Yet, listen to this, yet I will remember my covenant with you. When the Bible uses the word remember, it's not that God forgot and needs to have his memory jog. What he's saying is I will act towards you in a certain way. I'm going to act out of this thinking. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. This first covenant was given temporarily. This first covenant was given to show us our need for a savior. But God has always had a plan since day one to give us an unbreakable everlasting covenant. Are you thankful that our God is gracious like that? Are you thankful that his heart is full of mercy and love, that he has not chosen to just, to just leave us in our state of helplessness, grasping for that bar of perfection, always falling short, never able to get there? God says, I will move towards you despite your covenant breaking. I'm gonna hold up my end of the bargain and I'm gonna hold up your end of the bargain. That's our God. And this, is his, this has been his plan since the very beginning. Now, that's the need for this new covenant. The first covenant that God gave was good, but it was incomplete and it's temporary. So now we need to see the sponsor of this better covenant. Who's gonna bring it up? Who's gonna institute it? Who's gonna make it work? It's, it's no secret, Jesus. <laughs> Hebrews 7.22, look, look at this last verse in our passage. It says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If you're a, a highlighter or an underliner in your Bible, 
That word guarantor is a good word to, to circle or to underline. It's a very interesting word. In, in the entire New Testament, this is the only time that that word is used. In the original Greek, the Bible was written in, the New Testament was written in Greek. It's the only place where that word is used. And it has a very unique sort of meaning. And so I, I did some digging. I looked up so I could help understand and help us all understand what the author of Hebrews is meaning by this word. This is from Peter O'Brien, one commentator. He says this, the word rendered surety or guarantor is a legal term which appears only here in the New Testament, but was commonly used in Hellenistic Greek of a surety, listen to this, who assumed responsibility for another person's debt if the latter could not meet it. Isn't that interesting? A covenant is only as good as the, the strength of the person who's going to uphold it. And this term guarantor, saying of Jesus, Jesus is stepping into this role, this legal role of someone who will actually take on the other person's debt if the latter could not meet it. Isn't that interesting? You know, Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, spoke about this new covenant he said it would be a covenant written in his blood. Luke 22, this is the night of his, of his betrayal, the night of his arrest, the day before his crucifixion. He says, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this, is, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant. There's our word in my blood. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. And here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, listen, each and every single one of you are covenant breakers. You have all failed to meet God's standard of righteousness and perfection. Yet I, Jesus, will come along as the guarantor and I will pay the debt that you have failed to pay. I will take it all upon myself and I will do so by having my body broken and my blood spilled out. And in doing so, I will establish a new covenant with anyone who believes in me. This is what Jesus is saying to us. Friends, we have all fallen a thousand times. We have all failed to, to live up to God's design for us as human beings, but Jesus never did. The Bible clearly says that Jesus was sinless. He accomplished every single thing that God intended for humanity to, to do and to be. Jesus never sinned, not even once, not with his lips, not with his hands, not with his thoughts, not with his heart. And that means when he went to the cross to die, it means that his death actually means something. It means that his death can actually pay back the debt that we owe God. Do you know that we owe God a tremendous debt? We have stolen from God. We have claimed his glory for ourselves. We have robbed from him. Each and every one of us are glory thieves. And because God is an infinite God, the debt is an infinite debt. And that infinite debt could only be paid by an infinite sacrifice. Church, his name is Jesus. He died on the cross in our place as the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor of a better covenant. This is a game changer, friends. You and I are so prone 
Even those of you who've been Christians for many years and you've heard the gospel, we are still so prone to a works righteousness mentality. Well, I just got to work harder. I just got to do better. I just got to show God uh, that I was a worthwhile investment. I'm going to do enough good deeds to impress God. I'm going to not do enough bad deeds to not make him mad. We're so prone to this works righteousness mentality. But if we could just get it through our thick and sinful skulls that Jesus has paid it all, I think we would experience a lot more joy, don't you think? Jesus has paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He is the guarantor of this covenant, an everlasting covenant, an unbreakable covenant. It's not right here in the part of the text, but let me just say, I can't wait to get into the part of the covenant where it talks about how it's unbreakable, that no matter how many times we've sinned and fallen, God God always upholds not only his end of the bargain, but ours too. What a God. He's the guarantor of this covenant. He's the priest of this covenant. Look in verse 13. The one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Again, we're, we're kind of going back over some of the stuff we talked about last week. Jesus isn't a priest because he was descended from Levi. He's a priest because he's from this line, uh, the order of Melchizedek. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says now. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily ascent, here it is, but by the power of an indestructible life. An indestructible life. Again, highlight that. How, how is Jesus a priest? How is Jesus gonna work out this covenant? Well, it's not because he's descended from, from Levi. It's not because he's from the family of Aaron. No, it's because he has an indestructible life. Friends, I left off a little part of the good news. There's more. It's not just that Jesus died in our place for our sins, but on the third day, guess what? He rose from the dead. He is alive forevermore. The tomb is empty, and he stands at, at, at working uh, his, his heavenly ministry on our behalf day and night. Other priests would wear out. Other priests would die, but Jesus holds that office forever. Why? Because he has an indestructible life. They killed him, and even that didn't work. Jesus is alive, church. When we talk about the cross, when we talk about his death in our place for our sins, may we always remember the resurrection because if, if Jesus had not raised from the dead, how would we know that any of his claims were true? How would we know that our sins are actually forgiven? How would we know that he really has the power uh, to forgive our sins? How would we know that when he says, if anyone believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live and I'll raise them up on the last day? How would we know that he wasn't just talking crazy? Oh, he rose from the dead! You think I'm excited now? You gotta come back in a few weeks on Easter. I'll be really excited then. Jesus is alive and he, he ministers out of a place of an indestructible life. An indestructible life. The first covenant showed us our need for a savior. Jesus shows up as the guarantor of this, this new covenant. Forgiveness of all of our sins able to reach that bar of perfection that God had set, not by lowering the bar, but by uniting us with Christ and raising us up. Oh, oh man. Think about, I mean, how many times do we do that, right? Lower the bar down, right? Just lower the bar down. Well, nobody's perfect. I did pretty good. I got an 8.5 out of 10, right? 
which we didn't, by the way. We're all much worse than 8.5. God says, no, I'm, I'm gonna leave the bar right where it is. I'm just gonna unite you with my son, Jesus, and I'm gonna lift you up. And now Christian, when God looks at you, he sees you as though you were as sinless and perfect as Christ Jesus himself. When God looks at you, he is not disappointed in you. He's not, well, here comes Joe again. I don't know, sorry, Joe. <laughs> and it's just a name, it's just your average Joe. Just picking a name, not picking on anyone in particular. Right? That's not God's attitude towards you. That's not how he looks at you. That's not how he views you. That's not his disposition towards you. His disposition towards you is that of the same love that he has for his perfect son. If you've been united with Christ, you've been raised up to the bar in him. Your perfection is in him. He is your perfection. You measure up in Christ. And this is amazing because now that we measure up, we have this better hope we can draw near, near to God. Verse 19 says, now a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Whew. It's just, my heart is so stirred by this truth. If you measure up, you get to boldly approach God. You get to have face-to-face -face relationship with him. This is, this is important, this better hope, because all sorts of things are competing for us to, to have our hope in earthly things, temporal things, things of this world. But, but if we have a better hope and we have a, a, an indestructible high priest and we have this, this whole new vantage point, do you think that should change our lives, how we relate to the day-to-day -day stuff? I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you are stressed about bills right now? How many of you are stressed about what school your kid's gonna go to? How many of you are stressed about relational tensions? How many of you are stressed about politics? I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but I am saying when you start to understand what Jesus has done for us, our, our perspective shifts, amen? Jesus said, Jesus himself said, you know, you know, don't worry about what you're gonna eat and where you're gonna sleep. Your father knows you need those things. He says he takes care of the birds, he takes care of the flowers. Your father, your father knows that you need all those things. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know, lifting your eyes up, lifting your, 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 your gaze out of the earthly and the temporary to this better hope. Just a totally new vantage point that we've been given in Christ Jesus. That's our, that's our sponsor of this new covenant. Now, one more point to see here is this certainty of this better covenant because at this point, many of the original hearers and, and possibly even some of you, this sounds too good to be true. This sounds like one of those deals that ends up being a scam on the other side, right? Oh, all your sins are forgiven. Oh, God treats you as though you were as perfect as Jesus. How, are, we, how are we sure this isn't gonna change? I mean, the first covenant was temporary. The first covenant changed. Maybe he's gonna change this one too. Are we really sure about this? Are we really certain? Can I really you know, put my full weight on this covenant that God is now making in Jesus Christ? Look at what the author of Hebrews says in verses 20 through 21. And it was not without an oath. Those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. God has staked his entire reputation on this covenant in Jesus. 
If this covenant through Jesus doesn't work out, then God is open to the charge of being called a liar. God has taken all of his chips, proverbially speaking, and pushed them into the center of the table. He's all in. It's Jesus. So the question for you is, are you all in through Jesus? Are you responding? Are you going to take all of your chips and push them into the center of the table? Listen, for, for those of you who are, are not Christians, I, I said this earlier, but I'll say it again. When God offers a covenant, it's on his terms. We don't barter. We don't wheel and deal. We either take God up on the terms that he offers us or we don't. And we face the consequences. For those of you who are not Christians, I am pleading with you today, don't make bargains and deals with God. Take him up on this covenant, this offer of grace through Jesus. It's way better than any deal you could come up with. Sometimes we say things like, God, if you just help me out of this jam, I'll do X, Y, and Z. God, if you just give me this girl, then I'll stop saying those four swear words that I feel bad about. You know, God, if you do this, I'll do that. Stop. For those of you who are Christians, sometimes we still slip into this, don't we? We do sometimes. God, if you just help this situation with my bills, I'll read my Bible twice on Thursdays. It's silliness. God has given us his very best in Jesus. We are granted the perfection of Christ. No more deals, no more bargains. God has pushed all his chips in. Will you push all your chips in? I like the way that Charles Spurgeon says it. Men should believe in Jesus Christ with their whole heart and rely upon him with unstaggering confidence. Going all in. Going all in. Unstaggering confidence. Let me close with a couple of brief thoughts. Only four this week. Um, if, if this is the situation with this new covenant, what does that mean for us in our lives? How, how, do, how do we live this out? How do we live out this better covenant? I've got four thoughts for you, four things that it's the end of. This new covenant is the end of four things. The first one is this, no more ditches. No more ditches. And, and, and what do I mean by ditches? I mean ditches in our relationship with this idea of perfection. The two ditches really are perfectionism or disregard. Perfectionism, this ditch says, oh, I, I gotta be perfect, I gotta grit my teeth, I gotta sit up straight, I gotta white knuckle, I gotta just really work hard on being perfect. And, and if I ever fail, then I'm just, you know, back on, you know, back on again, more perfection, more perfection. Instead of really trusting in the finished work of Christ Jesus. The other ditch though is disregard. Oh, Christ is my perfection. I can just do whatever I want. I can live however I want. I can just sin all the more because grace will increase. That's a, that's a, very unloving way to respond to such an amazing gift. Would you agree? No, as Christians, we, we get out of those ditches of perfectionism. We, one of our values as a church and our, our list of values is we value progress, not perfection. That means this, Jesus is my perfection. This side of eternity, I will still stumble and fall and I will repent and I will press on to continue to follow Jesus more closely tomorrow than I did today, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. Growing in the fullness of Christ. Not stressing over thinking, I've got to be perfect today, and not being disregarding of the fact that, no, we do need to repent of our sin and to make every effort to, to say no to sin and to say yes to God's righteousness. No ditches, no more ditches. The second thing that this better covenant means is no more despair. No more despair. 
Some of you in particular have very sensitive consciences. And when you sin or when you fall, you feel like the whole world is caved in. Some of you came here today having sinned on your way to church. I'm looking at some of you parents with young kids, right? How how, how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to deal with tough circumstances showing up in life? Oh, God God loves me today because circumstances are good. God doesn't love me because now my circumstances are hard. No, God's attitude towards you is that of love. If you are a Christian, there is no place in your life for despair. Yes, we will go through hard times. Yes, we'll have challenges. Yes, there'll be times where we're sad or we're maybe even discouraged. But if you're a Christian, we don't ever despair because our hope is on Jesus, the one who has an indestructible life. Amen? No despair. Number three, no more deals. No more deals. For those of you who are not Christians, no more, no more trying to put together some sort of arrangement with God that, that seems mutually beneficial to both parties. Here's the, here's, the, here's the blunt truth. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your terms. But you know what? Here's what's better. God wants you. God loves you. And he's come to you with a deal that's way better than anything you could ever come up with. For those of you who are Christians, let's not fall into that same mentality. Oh, I'm gonna make deals with God. I'm gonna work these things out. God has already given us everything we need in Christ Jesus. We come to him on his terms. And number four, no more distractions. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. We get to draw near to God. Yes, life will throw all sorts of stuff at us. Yes, there's a lot of noise in our culture. Yes, we're in a political election year. Yes, uh, we have challenges and things that must be addressed. But at the end of the day, all of those things will fade away. And those of you who are Christians, you will spend eternity in the presence of God and of the risen lamb. And in 10,000 years, when we look back on fighting with the cable company or whatever's going on in your life this week, how, how, much, how much do you really think that's gonna matter in eternity? I'm not saying that things in life aren't important, but I am saying don't be distracted by earthly things. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I wanna do something that I don't very often do. And I wanna invite you to just close your eyes for a minute. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna lead in a prayer. I don't, I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know where you stand with Jesus, but I wanna give an opportunity for anyone here today who is tired of living the making deals with God game and just wants to, you wanna push your chips all in with Jesus. I wanna pray a prayer and invite you to pray it. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to have all the right words. God's interested in the state of your heart. And so I'll just pray this prayer. And if this is you, I encourage you to pray it. You can pray it in your own mind. You can pray it silently under your breath. You can pray it out loud for all I care. I'd be fine. But, but, but mean it and let your heart be right before God in this. Let me just pray. And for those of you who are Christians, just be praying right now along with me. God, I admit that I'm sinful. I admit that I'm broken. I admit that I've tried my best and I've just come far short. And so God, I'm tired of trying on my own strength. I'm, try- I'm tired of trying to impress you. And God, I want to take you up on your offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness through this covenant that Jesus made. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he died on a cross for my sins. I believe that because of his death, I'm forgiven. And I believe that he raised on the third day and that by trusting in him, I get to spend eternity with God.
God, help me to learn what it means to walk with you. Help me to learn how to follow you with my whole heart and my whole mind and my whole life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're somebody who prayed that today, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time where you actually meant it, would you find me or one of the other pastors after the service would love to talk with you and follow up. But for the rest of us, we're gonna move into a time of response now. We're gonna respond to Jesus, this great high priest, this one who's given us everything. We're gonna respond through the giving of our tithes and offerings. If our financial stewards would please come forward and collect the offering. Let me just say, um, if you're a guest or a visitor, you're not under any obligation to give. You're invited to if you'd like, but we don't want you to feel pressured or anything like that. We're gonna give as an act of worship to God and, and, and we're gonna do so joyfully, amen? While they're collecting the offering, let me just read a few discussion questions, things to help us in our community groups this week and in our homes to have conversation. What bargains or deals have you tried to make with God? And where do you need to accept God on his terms and not yours? Christian and non-Christian alike, we're so prone to that. Two, what are, the, what are the ditches that Christians can fall into when it comes to this idea of perfection and how can we help one another avoid these ditches? Maybe, maybe you tend towards one ditch or the other and then talk about where our perfection is truly found. Number three, Jesus is an eternal priest. He lives forever. He has an indestructible life. And how do these truths help us avoid being overly hung up on temporal and earthly things? A couple things to pray as well. We love to pray together in our homes and our community groups. Pray that we as Christians would increasingly find our perfection in Jesus. And then number two, for the non-Christians in your life, pray that they would stop bargaining and making deals with God, but accept this offer of grace through the new covenant. And, and on the subject of, of just speaking to those who are not Christians, I wanna remind you that we have an opportunity coming up here in a few weeks with the celebration of Easter. Uh, our culture is such that people will sometimes take you up on an invite to go to church on Easter and on Christmas because of, I don't know, tradition, guilt. And our job is to capitalize on that guilt, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but I mean this. Uh, I actually had a conversation with somebody right before the service where they said, yep, my, my parents and my brothers are coming to church for the first time this whole, you know, in the last year because it's Easter and, and we wanna be there to offer them the hope of Jesus and the message of the gospel. And so um, our, 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 uh, our guy Eliezer put together some amazing posters and they're two-sided, Good Friday on one side, Easter on the other, and these, these little handbills. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Um, with these posters, grab a couple. They're out on the Connect desk. Take them to the coffee shops in your neighborhood. Take them to the restaurants, anywhere that has a bulletin board and post them up. Post up the Easter side especially. And then take some of these cards and, and more importantly, just be praying. Who does God want you to invite to come be a part of these celebrations we're gonna have in just a few weeks? Because I don't know if you realize this, church, but the tomb is empty. And so we gotta throw a party. I'll be really excited then, I promise. All right, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's table Broken bread, the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience, the, the reminder that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. This is the covenant. When we come to the table today, I want you to be reminded that we are part of an everlasting covenant that was written in the blood of Jesus. And I pray that your faith would be strengthened today as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And we're gonna sing, Pastor Joe and, and the band are gonna lead us in songs of, of just celebrating God's grace and his mercy in our lives. And so I invite you to sing loudly. This, this first song is a new one to us and it just celebrates his mercy in our lives. And so I invite you to, as you, as you learn it, as you catch on, just lift your hands and, and lift your voices and sing this song out. May I never lose the wonder of your mercy. I invite you to stand if you would, I'll pray and we'll begin our time of response.
God, thank you for your better covenant. It's a way better deal than we could have ever come up with on our own. And we thank you that it's written in the blood of Jesus, the blood that never fails. This is an everlasting covenant. And so God, we, we don't have to try to make deals or bargains with you. We get to just come and experience all of your goodness. I pray now for our time of response. God, I pray that we would sing with joy. And as we take of the bread and the wine, that you would strengthen our faith and remind us of just how secure we are in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.